Welcome back to another episode of Dole Whip and Dreams. As always, I'm your host, Maddie Limerick, and today we are joined by Senegai Steve from right here at the Certain Point of View Media Network, from the Real Movie Critic versus Senegai, to break down the incredible superhero movie, The Incredibles. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did recording it. And we'll get to that interview right after this. Do you wake up every morning, roll over, and check your favorite social media feed, only finding that you wish you had never looked at all? Well, Inklings is here to lift those doldrums during month of November. Inklings is a fictional short story podcast that will run daily on weekdays during the month of November from Dreamer Productions, the Dole and Dreams podcast, and Isolation Cast, Voices from Quarantine. Let your mind run to its deepest desires in the isolation of imagination. The stories will run two to ten minutes, so take a break for yourself and enjoy Inklings, your daily short story indulgence. You can find Inkling by liking and subscribing the Dole Up and Dreams podcast, as well as Isolation Cast Voices from Quarantine, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. I see. This is a hobo suit, darling. Oh, you can't be seen in this. I won't allow it. Fifteen years ago, maybe, but now... Oh, what do you mean? You designed it. I never look back, darling. It distracts from the now. You need a new suit, Welcome back, dreamers. I have another one of the amazing hosts from the Certain POV Network here. I have the Cineguy with me today. We already have Real Movie Critic on, so I had to have Cineguy, who is obviously part of <laughs> uh, Real Movie Critic versus Cineguy. They rebranded. The new show is awesome. Uh, so, Cineguy, tell the audience a little bit, a bit about yourself if they haven't had a chance to listen to your show yet. Hello, hello. My name is Steven, or as Matt said, I am also the Cine Guy on our certain POV podcast, The Real Movie Critic versus The Cine Guy. It's a amazing, a lot of fun. It's a film critique podcast where me and our, my co-host Hans, The Real Movie Critic, we just go on and on about films, like review the newly released ones, talk about like the latest movie news, and it's just a lot of fun, just us like heckling each other. It's just so much fun. Do check it out. It is a lot of fun. And by the time this episode has come out, I will have already done an episode with you all uh, where we talk about Disney's Artemis Fowl, which released That's on right. Disney Plus. Uh, but we're recording that in the future from this. So it's weird podcast timeception. So everybody <laughs> should have checked that out. Hopefully everybody's already listening and subscribing to you all. So, um, Stephen, why don't yes. you tell the audience a little about, about yourself from the perspective of how Disney and Pixar, because this is the second Pixar film we're doing on the show, how they've kind of influenced you and your life and being uh, a movie goer and also like a content creator around film. Gotcha, gotcha. All right. So as um, here's a little fun fact. I'm actually the youngest member of the Storm POV Network. So Disney and Pixar has been my childhood pretty much. I've grown up with them ever since I was a little kid. I had so many classic films on VHS like Toy Story, mm-hmm. Hercules, Mulan. And it has been a big like influence on in my life. Like I was a fan of classic Disney like Peter Pan, the original mm-hmm. Snow White, Pinocchio. 
And yeah, it's been a massive part of my life. And movie wise, I've seen so many films like in theaters or on like VHS and DVD. I believe the first Pixar film I saw in theaters was Monsters Inc., which was a lot of a really fun experience. And that's I a think good I one. it was a very good one. I think I called so many things Kitty after I saw that film. <laughs> kitty, Kitty. <laughs> oh, yes. We love yeah. Boo. So yes. we're gonna launch in you. And I were going over some ideas because at this point we're in the podcast there. We've we've covered quite a few uh, movies for just being in our first season. But uh, you threw out a couple and I quickly jumped at this one. So why The Incredibles? Uh, this has been a, an amazing film, especially from my childhood, like I mentioned. Mm-hmm. I believe it was, I was in second grade when this movie came out and it was like a massive part of my life. I bought like the action figures. I bought the DVD. And here's a funny little thing. When I went to the Disney store to buy the action figures, these came with a little ring. Mm-hmm. My friends and I wore those rings and we were like, yeah, we're the Incredibles boys. And we were like, Aww. it was like a power pack pretty much. I love that. It was that. just so much fun. I love that. So this movie is probably one of my top two or three Pixar films. It's, 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 it combines genres of everything I love, being a comic nerd, being a Disney nerd. But also, now that I'm an adult and I understand the kind of deep production that went into this movie and kind of what um, Brad Bird, the director, brought to this movie specifically because of his training and things. Um, So it's super multi-layered. I'm super excited for us to talk about it. So let's jump in. In. Um, So what we like to do is we like to kind of pick apart production wise, then we'll do script and performances, and then we'll kind of go through just our kind of overall um, uh, kind of uh, things that we love about this. So what is it particularly about The Incredibles that as a kid, but also now as like a grown adult that like really stick with you and are some things that are just kind of your favorite aspects of this uh, from like a plot wise or from like just a movie standpoint? Hmm, well, when I first saw it as a kid, my first instinct was what I, any child would think. Yeah, superheroes, pow, pow, awesome, so much colorful, yay, all that stuff. Yeah. But now we're watching it as an adult. You have to, like, you know, pretty much see, like, the themes and, like, mm-hmm. just the humanity this film projects, like, because most of my superhero films I've seen are, like, you know, it's always, like, hero versus villain, pow, 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 all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But now here we see, like, a, a superhero struggling with their humanity. I like, the, it's a whole, like, balance between, like, reality and being a superhero so it's kind of like a whole like journey of like character and which they mm-hmm. trying to find trying to live rid of their glory days but also trying to see that like even though they're like you know super beings they are still human they're still humans they have families and they love each other yeah, for me, that's something that I think is really impressive because uh, um, we now live in a world where we are oversaturated with superhero films. Because at the point this movie had come out, we had only had like the Batman movies of the 90s, and then we'd had like the first two X Men films. We were about to get the third X Men film like a year or two later. And so. It wasn't an oversaturated market like we have now, but what they do is they give us this idea. So, like, one, this is a fairly long film for Pixar and Disney. Um, Maybe not so much anymore, but it is referenced that the length of the film was difficult for Pixar in production and, like, making this movie. The length of it was an issue for them. Um, But, you know, we get the typical 
prologue, which is we see them truly in their heyday. They are early 20-somethings. They're all gorgeous. They are fit. They are, you know, um, not a care in the world, and they are loved and respected by the community and the world. And then that's not the movie we get, because normally that's the movie we would get. That's, you know, The Watchmen. That's this kind of movie that we would normally get. But what they do is they give us this movie about what happens when the world no longer wants superheroes. And we see them aged. We see, you know, because I'm never one for the Superman archetype um, over here on POV. We have Men of Steel, where Case talks about um, supermen or and women, the super characters that are the Superman archetype. And Mr. Incredible is that Superman archetype. If he couldn't be Superman anymore. And that for me is this situation that I love about this movie. Like what happens when you are the super person that cannot be super anymore. And that premise of the film sells me a thousand percent on this. Even if it wasn't a Disney film, I think I'd be so interested in this also because it's about the family dynamic and, and Bob and Helen's relationship. And so you're right when you talk thematically that there's so on the surface, it's a really fun animated action film, but on the surface below it, which is what Brad Bird really wanted people to get into is the themes and the complexity of a family dynamic of, of the world dynamic. And I agree with you that it is just absolutely one of my favorite things about this. Um, for me, I love that they committed to this world that is, what if our future was actually the future of the 1960s? Because uh, Brad Bird talks about how he was directly inspired from um, uh, comic books and spy films of the 1960s. And so they kind of lean into that with this. And for me, it's one of the most successful things. Um, even though watching it now after we've gotten Incredibles 2, they don't lean into it quite as hard with this one as they do with Incredibles 2, just because there was 14 years between them. Um, but like we get the like sleek mid-century design and a lot of things. And for me, that sells this movie on such a beautiful, beautiful side. Yes, for sure. I, I agree completely. And like also think about this with Pixar, there was something new for them. Mm-hmm. Like back then there were like Toy Story, the whole like mm-hmm. what if an in, 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 like a, a lifeless object had a, had a life pretty much. Mm-hmm. But here we're dealing with like more like adult themes. Like mm-hmm. there's so many like adult like situations in this film. I'm like, how did that pass me when I was a kid? Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. Well, and they talked about it, um, so, you know, because we're talking about the production side of things. This movie almost completely debilitated Pixar. They, this was the most challenging thing. One of the animators was quoted as, there wasn't the hardest thing, which alluded to every aspect of this production was the hardest thing. Um, and so they had never really done real life like human bodies before. You know, we'd had we did Andy, we did Andy's mom, but at that point you only see parts of them and it's not a lot of movement. Um, they also talk about how this had the most scenes like settings that any Pixar film had had before. And so it's easier when you can replicate animals or like toys are going to move still in a very restricted way or cars are only going to move a specific way. But when you have a full movie of humans that you need muscles and sinew and clothing and hair. And so they were rapidly developing technology to make this work. And at several points, they did not think this movie was going to work. Um, (laughs) 
It is interesting to watch it now. I will say this is probably the first time I've watched this movie in 10 years, though I watch it and go, why don't I watch this movie more often? Because, again, it is one of my favorites. Um, I buy Incredibles merchandise literally all the time. Um, uh, and, my, I mean, my favorite character, I think my one of my... My, my favorite Pixar character is in this movie, and it's Edna Mode. Uh, <laughs> specifically because as a costume designer, we have this joke that Edna Mode is the patron saint of costume designers. And with oh, Incredibles yes. 2, we got a ton of Edna <laughs> Mode merch. So I believe I bought all costume designers that I knew or was going to school with. We all got an Edna Mode doll, and she sits on our desk. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's one of those things that all of these aspects are what makes Pixar great. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Hannah Katz, who has just been on the uh, our Return to Neverland episode and I were talking about Onward and she brought up this really good point where I love Onward but she was like you know with Pixar you come to expect a technological advancement between films you expect something that is greater than the film before in a way that they are pioneering technology Onward didn't necessarily do that I'm of the opinion that I don't think it needs to we'll do an episode on Onward coming up it's just so new I don't want to do it yet Um, but you know with this you know we're also in this time where Pixar is developing a way to corner the market. And this was before the Disney buyout of Pixar. So they were producing with Disney, but um, this was still completely Pixar. Um, But I think it shows this kind of push along that Brad Bird was the best director for this um, and writer, because I didn't realize until I was reading for this episode, he is trained by one of the original nine old men from Disney, one of those original nine animators. And he was his mentor growing up. And he was uh, from the one of the first graduating classes at California Institute of the Arts, along with John Laster and Tim Burton. So they're coming. So like that's where Pixar started. Um, and he worked on uh, Disney movies uh, like The Black Cauldron, Fox and the Hound. Um, and so he loved 2D animation, but also loved the future of what the digital animation could do. And Brad Bird, as an animator himself, really said that he worked and loved how malleable the digital aspects of it are. And now, again, we're now in 2020. This was 2004. It's been 16 years. Watching it like when they're in the water and their bodies are wet and their hair is wet. I don't think it looks super great, but I know nothing like that had been done at the time. And so I remember being blown away by this movie when I saw it in theaters. Yes, for sure. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Brad Bird because here's here's the beauty of why he was perfect for The Incredibles. Like, have you seen you seen Iron Giant, right? Oh, yes. Ah, uh, yes. That movie is tremendous. Like mm-hmm. the whole like Cold War setting and like mm-hmm. the giant robot and everything. So you know you you you, you mean to see that Brad Bird knows how to mix fantasy with reality completely com- mm-hmm. and great with his storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And also what helps was that he worked for Klapsky Juco in the late 80s which I'm sure all 90s kids remember the end of the Klasky Juco from the end of Rugrats. They helped develop the Simpsons for Network. He worked on the Simpsons. He worked on Rugrats. He helped develop shows like The Critic and King of the Hill. And it was after King of the Hill that he got um, approached to or that he pitched Iron Giant to Warner Brothers. And while it was a financial failure for Warner Brothers. I think it is one of the greatest animated films of all time. For Um, sure. 
it was having the Iron Giant in Ready Player One was the only thing redeemable for me about Ready Player One. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he's also, you know, um, he's had some clunkers. Like, he wrote Tomorrowland with Disney, and it was not a good movie. Um, but, like, again, you see this man's brain that he has the most amazing eye for detail, for storytelling. Um, and so all of those things are so present here in The Incredibles. And it's one of those things that even picking it apart, I don't know if there are anything production-wise. Again, there are some things that haven't aged well, but I remember that they are revolutionary for the time. And so we wouldn't have had the next Pixar movie without this. Honestly, we could Brave had one of the most stunning landscapes of Pixar that they'd ever made, and Merida is a beautifully sculpted digital character, and they couldn't have done her without this movie first, because this is where they figured out how to do real hair and skin and eyes. And... um Something I also love, and this is something that Pixar always does well, that other animation studios don't, is there's always a light and a life in the eyes of the character, where sometimes other animated studios, especially when they got into digital, uh, may even reference Shrek, which is a great movie, but characters tend to be dead behind the eyes for uh, like those first four or five years of like heavy computer-generated animation. Um, and this was something that, again, is not prevalent in the, the Pixar movies. Um, and I, you know, I just think it, it's so stellar from top to bottom. And I don't, I don't think the movie actually would have been good if they didn't have to struggle along the way in how to put this movie together. Like it's, it's just, I'm not, I love how much they had to struggle. Um, and you can also see. Um, Brad Bird's um, kind of obsession with Hayao Miyazaki and his Studio Ghibli Studios. Um, because, again, you see a lot of that in this, um, in, in the kind of storytelling aspect. And also, the family dynamic is also, to me, one of the most important things about this. And they get that right in the kind of production before we even get to plot of how the family looks together as a picture. Um and this idea, uh, though apparently at one point I didn't realize that one of the children was not going to have powers, um, uh, either the son or the daughter. And I thought that would have actually been a really interesting, uh, a really interesting aspect. But I love Dash and Violet together, so I almost would not have wanted to see that. Oh, yeah, um, for sure. What are some other things that just work for you, Stephen, with with uh, kind of the production side or just this movie as a whole? Uh, well, for this movie as a whole, here's the thing I, I gotta mention. I'm a sucker for like film scores. All right, mm-hmm. Michael Giacchino, he who composed the theme song, he is a genius. The song is so stylish and heroic, it makes me want to like jump a building while wearing a suit. Yeah, it's so good. And for me, um, it ties this movie together. Um, because it's got classic James Bond feel, it's got classic Superman feel, and then he amped it up even more in Incredibles 2, and it's one of those things that, like, he gets the genre, which is why Brad Bird hired him. Um, because something interesting is, this is the first time that, like, people from outside of Pixar were brought in to make a Pixar film, and while you can say that, you know, Brad Bird was connected to them when he went to CalArts, where Pixar started, as it was starting, um... You know, it was one of those things that uh, Michael was one of the people that he brought in with him. And I can't imagine any other score with this movie. It it ties it together as such a whole. Um, 
And, and it's, it's literally, like you said, it's legendary. It pierces through the brain. Um, and it, it is just a selling point. And he really leaned into how he kind of orchestrated and used the scores and the scenes to push the action along. Yes, for sure. Like there were times where like the, um, the theme song would be like upbeat and heroic, but there were times mm-hmm. where it would it'd be like dark and kind of mm-hmm. like slow. Like oh mm-hmm. no, what's gonna happen? Like remember the scene where Mister Incredible has to stop the train from like coming down the uh, yeah. broken track? Mm-hmm. That like whole like dark like quiet theme of like mm-hmm. how is one man gonna stop an entire train? That really builds yeah. up the suspense of the of that scene. Yeah, and what I love is the the prologue reflects a grittier side of the detector co- detective comments. And then when we get a little bit later in the, you know, when you get like 13 years later, 14 years later, it's a little bright and sunnier, which is closer to what comics in the sixties actually looked like. And so for me, again, it's these really intelligent attentions to detail that created a world. Because again, it's something that Disney and Pixar do really well, which is world building. You can look at pictures of these scenes even before you launch into the the speaking of any of the characters or anything when you get the the underscore with just kind of these um massive backdrops and these beautiful scenes and things you kind of know what's happening you know where you are you understand the story on such a non-verbal level which is something again a lot of other studios just do not succeed with Yes for sure and I have always said color in a film always breaks up like you know dramatic approach with the characters mm-hmm. like have you seen little women the um the, the, the Greta film? Gerwig no yes, Greta I have Gerwig. not seen it yet I love Greta Gerwig I love little women but I still have not seen it yet it is on my list uh the ho- the big key to that film when it comes to, like different like time er- eras is mm-hmm. color mm-hmm. like the past is all like bright and like in your face while the present is like dark and kind of gray mm-hmm. that's kind of what you say with the incredibles like the whole like, prologue where he's like saves the cat and everything it's all like mm-hmm. sunny the beautiful little sunset is a little brighter but then mm-hmm. like the time jump it's all gray and musty this is all like mr Incre- through mr incredible's eyes mm-hmm. he just wants like that those glory days back mm-hmm. and the, the sun does kind of come up when like the whole family dynamic is like brought together oh yeah you see him genuinely happy for the first time when the kids show up with helen to save him and they're all in costume like it's so because you see him like craving for this thing of like it's that typical story of like the football player that like didn't stay fit and like works at a a insurance because that's the thing is like if you take away the aspect that he is a superhero it's most of like 80 70s and 80s movies of the guy who's like life went to shit it's kind of Clark Griswold in the National Lampoon movies you know he used to be super fit and handsome and like he's balding and he's gained weight and like I you know they just it's so frank in how they handled that um so I guess you know we're kind of transitioning and talking to plot aspects now so like let's talk plot um again I starting back with the prologue this idea of this over eager kid um, who just wants to love and be accepted by Mr. Incredible and Mr. Incredible's such an ass. And like, <laughs> and, and this thing of like, what happens to the people, you know, it's this idea of everybody 
you know, everybody loves a celebrity story when they're like, oh, this person treated me terribly um, when no one was around. But everybody was like, oh, I met them at this event and they were so lovely. And, you know, it's that idea of like when you get a little bit of fame, when you get a little bit of recognition, what happens when the cameras aren't on? What happens when people aren't watching you constantly? Mm -hmm. And you have this kid that really just wants to be accepted. And, you know, we all hope that you're not going to turn into a supervillain. But like Bob kind of deserves everything he gets in this movie. And it's his family is his saving grace that like, imagine like if he and cause there's another way this could have gone that like his life could have fallen apart. They didn't have kids or they had one kid and like Bob and Helen get a divorce. There would have been nobody there to save Bob because Bob needed to ultimately be saved from himself because all of the choices he's making are really selfish and self-centered because he is a family man and he's got three kids and he has a wife who ultimately is also a super. So like, she was just as notable as he was. She was working just as hard as he was. And so, you know, this also brings in some interesting aspects of like gender roles of, you know, how the 1960s were being told. But, you know, I think launching it immediately, we're making this kid who, which I think is funny, both Syndrome and Mr. Incredible are patterned after Brad Bird, which I think is funny. Um, and he was like, I didn't get the joke until it was too late to change it. Um, and I was like, okay, Brad, whatever you say. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, you know, it's one of those things that just starting off with that story makes so much sense to me. And it's the interesting thing of the allure of the other woman. And it's not actually that he wants to be with Mirage. It's that he wants to have what Mirage is offering him. And so, you know, it's also that very Disney way of being like, oh, it's this idea of an affair. But, like, it's ultimately worse than an affair because superheroes are illegal. Um, their whole family could get in so much trouble because of this. Um and, uh, you know, this idea that he's in this dead end job that he, oh, not dead end, dead end, but he like, he works in insurance and he's miserable and they're still in contact with that Nick Fury kind of character. Um, <laughs> uh, and you know, so there are all these things that they set up all these little things where they make it an archetypal family film and then add the hero aspect on top of it, which for me personally really works. Yes, for sure. Oh man, I'm glad you mentioned the whole like affair thing because I think this is the first person film that like like I said deals with uh, many adult themes. Mm -hmm. Like, um, I I you would never seen like in Toy Story like uh, mm -hmm. Woody dealing with like um an affair with uh, Bo Peep and Buzz Jealous and like that. You would never see it in a kids movie. So yeah. the fact, so like the fact that they decided to take this whole different route, it appeals to both adults and kids. It's a, it's a movie that all families can enjoy and of course adults can chuckle while the kids are like why are you laughing at dad yeah well and and of course that is actually something brad bird talks about through a lot of interviews he hated that this movie got billed as a kid's movie because he was like animation is an art form it's not something just to appease children it is its own art form and he was like this was the first pixar film to have a pg rating it is an animated film with a pg rating like which for working within pixar and disney that's a big deal like and 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 he was like yes while it has aspects of things that are appealing to kids um, like with Incredibles 2 he went after Apple and iTunes because they build it as a children's movie only and only really put it accessible through like the children's portal on iTunes and um, and it's really interesting when you're a filmmaker where you're making stories within a particular medium, but you're not bending to that medium's expectations, which again, that's kind of something that Disney and Pixar always do. Pixar specifically, um, 
because again, I don't think Disney would be as far as they are without Pixar. Like Disney only has the technological advances in animation because they started partnering with Pixar for black cauldron or um, for rescuers down under. Um, but like they started using computer animation with Black Cauldron, which was 1985. Um, and, you know, they had done Tron. And so, you know, there were these things where they were trying this aspect, but, you know, they wouldn't have gotten far in um, in animation without Pixar, which is interesting that they've always had this interest, this very love-hate relationship, even though they now um, uh, have pulled this aspect in. Um, and apparently, because thematically, we've been talking thematically in this plot, um, that the Fantastic Four 2005 adaptation was heavily made to, they made heavy script changes and added more special effects because they wanted to be more like The Incredibles. They were making a more campy superhero film and leaned into this thing, which is really funny because Fantastic Four ultimately is a family superhero uh, group as well ish, um, but and it's always been kind of campy. So for them to lean into this because they wanted to be more like The Incredibles and Fantastic Four released a year later, um, that's just interesting to me. Now we talk thematically about this. There are a lot of aspects of this film that also really embraces philosophy and writing of the mid-century. Um, so things like Nietzsche, um, Ayn Rand, which. Bert Feld was ridiculous, but early on in his life, he actually really um, appreciated her writing, but hated to be like labeled as the Ayn Rand guy because that wasn't what he did. Um, but he was actually flipping the idea of Atlas Shrug and Fountainhead on its head and kind of making the analysis people, they, he wanted them to feel silly for like, make for screaming the iron giant was leftist and all these things where he's like, you know, and like iron giant, he changed a lot of the story aspects because his sister was murdered during production of that film by her husband. Um, and so he added an anti-gun aspect to it, which again makes a ton of sense. Um, but he's heavily influenced by this time because if there's one thing that was huge during this time was the red scare. We'd come out of McCarthyism in the fifties and, you know, communism was that big thing everybody was afraid of in the 1960s. And that heavily informs how he tells the story. But what's interesting to me ultimately about this story is that I still have compassion for uh, syndrome uh, until uh, through most of this movie. Like I have, I don't respect him. I don't like him, but you have some compassion. Um, especially when we get to the points where, uh, he realizes that he's out of control of his own plans. Like his plan has, he's literally going to kill more, like kill people when ultimately he just wanted to be loved. And this is not the way to do it, but you see this little boy and you know, that's something again that Disney and Pixar tend to do is that you find a little compassion for the villains with the exception of like Al in Toy Story 2, who I just think is gross and awful and got everything he deserved and stink beat. Um, <laughs> but this is that aspect of, while we would hope nobody would ever do what syndrome does. It's, I get how he got to where he did. Yes, for sure. Cause he's the thing. 
no one is born evil. All right, something no. has to happen that like triggers them to like send like, like look at Iron Man three, the whole like um, Killian. He wasn't born mm-hmm. like a bad guy. It was all because Tony Stark like like screwed him over pretty much mm-hmm. at that party. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's kind of show like um, I think it's like the whole like part like uh, how your past sins come back to haunt you. Because, like, mm-hmm. imagine if Syndrome was like, oh, okay, my, my idol doesn't care about me. I'll just move on. Then mm-hmm. the, we will have no movie at all. But the whole, like, I'm going right. to build up my revenge. I'm going to destroy the man who ruined my life. Okay? Mm-hmm. And a whole, like, I'm sorry, man, I, I was wrong for what I did. That's not going to save Mr. Incredible from this. No. Yeah. Yeah, it's not going to stop Bob from dying because Bob almost dies. And, like, the family almost dies. But, you know, it's that aspect of, you know, it's also... Bob got cocky and people lost their lives. And so, um, you know, that's why heroes were banned. I feel like if, like if I keep wanting to call him Sinestro, but syndrome, (laughs) um, like it's one of those things that like, if heroes hadn't been outlawed and syndrome had walked away, like Bob ultimately caused every aspect of this. He caused heroes to be, um, a blacklisted, he caused syndrome to like, like hoard money and develop technology and just fume. And like, um, you know, there it's these things of Bob causes everything to happen in this movie and his family saves him. It's only because of his family that he's saved because like, if this had been any other thing, you know, he, if this had just been Bob, he would have died so early in this movie. Um, <laughs> and, you know, um, Syndrome would have taken over. It's very much a Lex Luthor when when Lex um, appears to be this benevolent person to everybody, but secretly is trying to kill Superman, which, again, I don't really like Superman, so here we are. But, um, right. you know, in this movie, again, I think I've seen every superhero movie that's come out, and I love comics, and this just has something... That, again, also calls back to the early Stanley, early Jack Kirby. It's got those aspects, but then it's also something that's so specifically Pixar. Now, something plot-wise, I wish we got more Frozone as other than the token black friend. That oh, is, my gosh. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> and he's funny, and I love Honey, his wife. She's great. I'm glad we didn't get to see her in, in Incredibles 2 just because just having the voice. Again, it's also so 1960s um, in, in kind of movies and in TV. Um, but, you know, if if, I'm, if we're talking plot-wise, in which they did solve in Incredibles 2, I will say, um, we had a much more diverse cast because there were so many more characters in, in, in Incredibles 2. Um but you can also see how this movie actually influenced how we told superhero stories. And I guarantee this really heavily affected Marvel Studios and how we ultimately told, um, you know, I, I do wish everyone would take a page out of this where they prove that, like, it doesn't have to be campy to have brightly colored superhero costumes. Like, that's my as a costume designer, that's my one complaint in Marvel across the board is all of the costumes are so dark and so tech driven and so uh, into a gritty movie that like 
everybody blends in together. Like that was my one issue in Endgame was that like we got to that fight and if it wasn't for yellow and orange sky, I wouldn't have seen half of those fucking characters. <laughs> um, but you know, it's it's that example of the moment they leaned into camp in those films of Thor Ragnarok um, and Guardians of the Galaxy. Those characters are brighter. We get a brighter color palette and I want them to know that like you don't have to do a funny superhero movie in order to have a brighter color palette, but there also should always be humor in a super movie because otherwise you lose the point of the movie. Um, and this, I mean, you know, when we're talking, is there anything in this that plot wise just doesn't work for you? Hmm. Well, I agree completely that we should have gotten a lot more Frozone because, in fact, I want a spinoff film, all right? Like, maybe Honey's like also like has superpowers. He has, maybe they have like super kids. You never know. Listen, sure. I, I want her to be like Bumblebee from Teen Titans. And I want that, like, she's Honeybee. Like, the, I would love if, like, her, and because also if they're leaning into the 1960s, um, black film and black characters and black created content, which was slim at the time. It has such a cool aesthetic and actually in a time where like we are literally recording this during the protest because of George Floyd's murder and Breonna Taylor's murder and 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 Ahmed Arbery's murder. And like it could be a really interesting movie because of this aspect of like during the 1960s and early 70s when we're here, we have the Black Panthers, we have civil rights. I would like Frozone to be there more than just to get Bob's ass out of out of uh heat and like you know it's nice to see that like they've got this friend but he very, felt very much like the sixth power ranger that you bring in who's way more powerful than you are but like ends up not being super powerful because like his ice is cool and they give him some fun limitations but like i want to see him kind of go ape shit also when you have samuel l jackson give him more to do give him more to exactly. do <laughs> have him say motherfucker in a kids film i want to hear it oh Okay, that's that. That's going a little far, and I I think fuck gets you an R rating, at least a PG thirteen rating, which that would be a little much. Um, but I do, you know, I think, uh, you know, there's so much they did great with Incredibles two, and again, this all is in hindsight. That there are just those moments of you can tell this was being written in two thousand four because there are just certain things that you don't see because nobody was seeing it not because we didn't need to but nobody was holding anyone accountable but i think this is one of the few examples from that time that it's not a problematic movie i don't cringe when i'm watching it because like when you go back and watch like all of the movies from like 2002 2003 2004 2005 especially with comedies they are cringeworthy i just point that like (laughs) chris evans did not another teen movie where he wore whipped cream over his groin and his boobs and Ryan Reynolds uh, was in Van Wilder. Like this was a dark time. Um, Oh man. But you know, it's, it's one of those things that this movie I think still stands out and you know, I'm a little overly critical of things. And as I was watching this, there were a few things that I went, uh, I don't know that. And I wouldn't say that anything aged poorly. There are just a few things that I would like to see more of. And again, they were things we saw more of in Incredibles 2. We got more people. We got more background characters. Um, we got more interesting design in costuming. Because um, in this, they kind of leaned into stereotypical costume, like clothing of the time, where in Incredibles 2, we got like really historically accurate, interesting 1960s cost, like clothing aspects. Um and, you know, I, another thing, I would have liked more from Mirage. I would have liked her to actually have powers 
And for like, because like, what if it was a thing where like syndrome was tampering her abilities? Like that was part of her. Mm. Like she had to go work for him, or he was going to sell her out as a superhero, or as a super. And so she had like a bracelet or a necklace or something that tampered her. And then like when he threatened, when like Bob was like strangling her or like crushing her, it shattered her thing, and she like fell to the ground and realized that like she could do better than just working for syndrome. Um, Cause like maybe there was this aspect that he was an orphan. She's an orphan. They met in an orphanage and like she found out she had powers and like he started exploiting that from when he got thrown away by Mr. Incredible. There are just a couple backstory things where some of the scenes do go on a little too long and I would have liked a little more world building than just the pars. But again, um, I also remember there being way more, like we saw the phone calls with her, but then I remembered that was a short that I think they made of the babysitter with Jack Jack. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's, it's one of those things that I think I can be nitpicky and find more, but I think top to bottom story wise, they could tighten some things up, but, um, it's a great movie and I have no issues with it. And the cast is phenomenal. Like, absolutely wonderful. They're great. And, and they were pretty recognized. Because, like, Craig T. Uh, um, Nelson was pretty pretty well known with um, with from the other shows that he had done. And Holly Hunter was well known. And the kids didn't have to be well known. And Samuel L. Jackson. And so, really, you only had, like, three well-known actors in this. And it was enough to sell it. Because there was only... There was, like... 12 characters in this movie, like 13 characters in this movie, which is something that's so interesting. I mean, and what I mean, if we talk about, um, uh, Brad Bird voiced Edna Mode because they said they couldn't find, they wanted Lily Tomlin to be Edna Mode and she was in a little bit more of the movie. Um, but she turned it down and they could not get anyone to commit that was right. And so Brad Bird finally said, fuck it, I'll do it. And <laughs> it's so iconic. Like, Ed, again, I'm going to go back to it. The Edna Mode is everything. I love her. I love that she, so at, at Hollywood Studios oh, in, Dis, in, in Disney World, you can meet her and you walk through her like development lab to do a meet and greet with her. Oh, and wow. so they have all the suits they have all the suits on display and they look like schematics it's really fun like it's really intelligently done um and so it's one of those things that uh, um and you had jason lee as as syndrome um who is a, a who was a pretty well-known actor at the time um he's still pretty well known he was on my name is earl um and so like you had a couple like real like th- people that sold the movie, but like otherwise, like this movie really sold itself on its own with the, which again is a very Disney Pixar thing. Like the cast, you want, you want some recognizable names, but like you sell this movie on its own. Yes, for sure. For sure. Cause I think with the recognizable like actors, that's, that was to appeal to like the, more like the adult demographic mm-hmm. because kids yeah. don't, kids don't know who Craig T. Nelson, no. they, they mm-hmm. haven't watched Poultry Guys. They don't know who Jason mm-hmm. Lee is. They don't watch Mall Rats. So it's kind of yeah. more like, Oh, mom and dad recognize that voice. Let's check it out with their kids. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, you know, this is well beyond the point where Disney realized and Pixar and, you know, DreamWorks did this with Shrek in 99, 2000 when that came out, that animation is fun for everybody, but you have to give parents aren't just there to sit with their kids while their kids enjoy a movie. Parents want to enjoy an animated film as well, which was something that Disney was trying to figure out in the 70s and early 80s, which they now capitalize on. I would argue that they have totally come around and have figured that out. Um, 
But, you know, this is one of those things that it's just, it's so, so good. I mean, and we talked about um, Michael's relationship with um, Brad Bird. The, so our score, our score writer and our director, um, our good friends. Um, I didn't realize, oh, let me find it again. They are working on a... Um, oh, yeah, so in 2019, Brad Bird announced at the BAFTA Tea Party that he and Michael Giancino are working on an original musical film that will Ooh. contain, it's live action, that will contain 20 minutes of animation. I don't know what that is, but let me tell you, I'm excited. Because I went back through and listened to some of Michael Giancino's stuff and just some of the other movies that he'd done, and it... It's it's so good that I would love to see what kind of musical they want to do um, and kind of what they want to do with that because I I just I'm super super excited. So for anybody um, else who doesn't know him, he worked a lot as a composer for Disney Interactive um, and he did. Um, the Sega Genesis score for Gargoyles. He also worked on Gargoyles, the television show. He did the Lost World Jurassic Park. Um, he worked on several many. Um, he did Medal of Honor. He's done Call of Duty. He's done um, the Alias TV show. He did Medal of Honor. Um, he worked with J.J. Abrams a lot. He did Lost. He did Alias. Um, he's done the newer James Bond films, which, again, I think you can hear in, in how this has done. But also, from me, he, after The Incredibles, he worked with Walt Disney Imagineering and has redone all of the soundtracks for Space Mountain at Disneyland, Space Mountain Mission 2 in Disneyland Paris, and Hong Kong Disney. He also um, did the score for Sky High, and he did music and score for the Muppets Wizard of Oz, which, again, <laughs> and he did Ratatouille, and he did J.J. Abrams' 2009 Star Trek. So, like... Uh, you know, and he also did things like uh, uh, he did Up, he did Partly Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, um, Rogue One, and so Rogue One, Zootopia, Doctor Strange, Spider Man Homecoming, Spider Man Far From Home. Um, he did Coco. He did the score for Coco, which was uh, you know I just we re- uh, we have released our Coco episode. We talk about him a little bit, but he worked really uh, uh, delicately with. Um, uh, Bobby and Kristen Lopez to write the score for Coco in a way that it's good. Uh, he's also, he just did Jojo Rabbit and he's doing the, tw- uh, 2021 Batman film with Robert Pattinson. Nice. So like this man's a big deal. Like he's great. His music is amazing. He's won several, many Emmys, Grammys and Oscars. So like, you know, he to me is an unsung hero, but I just had to throw it out there that like he and Brad Bird are doing musical. And as a musical theater person, I cannot wait for whatever that is. I don't even know if it's still (laughs) happening, but um, yeah, I think top to bottom, this is so good. I have almost no problems with it. Um, I think all the characters are great. Cause like what kid doesn't want to be dash and what kid hasn't been violet. Um, you know, it's just one of those things that, like, everything is right in this movie uh, along the way. So I'm sure some of our listeners 
at home might disagree with us. So if they jump over to the Certain Point of View Discord server and post their opinions about today's episode uh, and The Incredibles or on our Facebook page, we would love that. Um, So, Stephen, question for you, because we've gotten a sequel. um, And normally my question would be like, how does this stack up in 2020? How does this thing? And I think it stacks up really well. I think they actually got rid of the gross aspects of the 1960s. There's some there, like there's some misogyny from Bob. There's some things about men's and women's roles, but like those are things that they kind of worked out of the story. And while I think there are things we need to talk about, I think in this aspect, it showed that their society had evolved some, um, uh, especially because Helen is like, let me, be, I am your equal. Let me be your equal. You do not treat me as an equal. And, you know, Mirage is kind of a lackey. But again, they're all things that they then improved on in Incredibles 2. So, you know, I, I don't know. What do you think about Steven? Uh, let me just say Incredibles 2, that was worth the wait. I just want to say that. <gasps> so worth the wait. Exactly. So worth. <laughs> this like, is not an Incredibles 2 episode, but like yeah, no. I... I cried through that movie. It was perfection. I saw it with my friend who worked, uh, who was going on to work in Imagineering, and we just thought it was perfect. Because talk about Michael Giancino. Again, the theme songs for Elastigirl, Frozone, and Mr. Incredible were <laughs> so stupid. I loved them. They were perfect. <laughs> and they just, like, they, they improved on everything, and they just made an even better movie than they made before. They were like, oh, we made this thing. Let's make a better movie. And I was like, well, Incredibles is so good. You can't make a better movie. And then they did. Um, um, and so, yeah, I'm sorry. I jumped on top of you. But, like, That's Incredibles okay. 2, so good. So good. <laughs> yes, for sure. And, like, yeah, like, when you mentioned the whole, like, uh, misogynism, I don't know. I guess um, I was focusing more on, like, the film aspect of the first one. I, mm-hmm. I didn't really, like, focus on, like, you know, gender roles. But the second one mm-hmm. does, it's pretty much, like, the, the female empowerment movie of that year, pretty much. A lot of girls that may focus. The villain is an actual female. And like, Which you could argue was probably a queer female as well, because one, she was totally into Helen, like totally into <laughs> Elastigirl. She was in love with Elastigirl. Um, and yeah, uh, but it's, you know, I just, I always look at things like that, but she was such a good character. I, I loved Incredibles 2 across the board. Yes, for sure, for sure. And uh, one thing we should probably mention about the, the whole villain dynamic with these films, they have no powers. They're just regular people. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. kind of the whole like Lex Luthor versus Superman aspect right here. Mm-hmm. It's like what happened happens when you live in a world of extraordinary people and you're extraordinary but you don't have powers like because that that woman was amazing in Incredibles 2 she developed technology like she was this really cool villain and Syndrome also really smart and so you know it's this thing of like what happens when these incredibly smart people are doing incredibly amazing things but nobody gives a shit because you don't have superpowers and I think that's such an interesting thing of when we talk about we all kind of want to live in a world uh, with superheroes or we want to live in an Avengers world, which is someone that lived in New York for a while. I don't want to live in New York where the Avengers are really there. I already hate New York enough as it is. I don't want New York <laughs> falling down around me, but you know what? How, ha- you know, everybody assumes they would have powers, but it's that thing. When you talk about, if you live in a universe, what happens if you live in this superpower universe and you don't get superpowers, you don't, you like, you have to do life as you know, with struggling without powers and things. And that is such an interesting thematic thing that they, address with this is like what happens to people whose brains are actually extraordinary but their bodies aren't super um they're just normal bodies and and how does that affect their relationship and how they work in their world and it's so smart exactly and going back to syndrome the whole thing he tells the parfum when they're captured like when he's old and like has had his glory days he will sell the invention so everyone could be a superhero 
but once once everyone's superhero, then no one's special anymore. So it's it's kind of the whole like, yeah. From now on, super once like if I win super the whole the whole the term superhero will mean nothing anymore because everybody can mm-hmm. have powers now with these inventions, pretty much. Yep, yep. I think, and that's that's also that great equalizer of like we don't necessarily actually want to put power in everyone's hands because we we're seeing what's happening right now with putting um the power in everybody's hands that maybe doesn't deserve power or is kind of use it in a corrupt way but you know people get angry when they're being again it's what's happening now people get angry when they're being downtrodden when they're being told they're not good enough when they are extraordinary but a power system is telling them they're not and you know i think we we see that play out really well in this movie and again it's another thing where there's so many conversations that we can take away from this that i would love for people to be having and continue to have yes for sure for sure great so normally in a lot of these movies, we have the conversation of what's next. Um, you know, because Disney's in this thing where apparently they want to remake everything which uh. as a live action, which that's not what we're talking about. And Incredibles <laughs> 2 happened. We love Incredibles 2. But I had a very different idea of what Incredibles 2 is going to be. And I thought they were going to do a time jump. I loved that they didn't after I saw it. But, you know... And they've all said that they were like, let's wait another 15 years before Incredibles 3. But like Holly Hunter and Craig T. Nelson are like, we might be dead. So I don't know. Um, (laughs) Uh uh, Would you like to see an Incredibles 3? Because I know we're in a market where it's oversaturated by sequels that we don't necessarily need. Because like we didn't need Cars 2. We certainly didn't need Cars 3. Uh, You know, Monsters University was a prequel, but and it was lovely. But like, do we need these sequels? And would you like another one of Incredibles? Hmm. Well, from my perspective, I would love another sequel because I love these films. Like, there's like mm-hmm. so much they could do with. Although, like, mm-hmm. I felt the second one felt like a good conclusion because mm-hmm. superheroes are now legal now. They can like roam the roam the earth and like save people. Mm-hmm. So, like, where do you go from that? Pretty much, because that's the big question. So- I have an idea, and I've had this idea for years. So you all do this on your show quite a bit. Um, You all actually, uh, a couple weeks ago, we're talking about live-action Hercules cast, which this, well, I guess it's very old now. And maybe by the time this happens, we will actually have a live-action Hercules cast. But they, like, a cast got leaked, and it wasn't true. Um, But let's talk Incredibles 3, because this is what I was hoping for in Incredibles 2, is that they would time jump 14 years. Um, because then you could still, well, I mean, the actress that played Violet did come back and play Violet again because she was a grown woman when she voiced Violet the first time. But like the, the musician who voiced Dash as a kid could have played Dash again. Um, and I love Jack-Jack. And so I wanted, we got a lot of Jack-Jack in Incredibles 2, which was so good. Um, between <laughs> his, 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 uh, sleepover with Auntie E and his, uh, fight with the, the raccoon. So good. Um, but what I was hoping for would be that, Superheroes are legal. We move into the future and uh, Dash and Violet have gone away. You know, Violet went to college. Dash didn't. Um, but they both have their own superhero teams. Um, now, for this, my caveat would be let's add Void to Violet's superhero team because I think they're good for they're They're setting up a friendship with Void after Incredibles 2. Um And uh, so, like, because, again, we're taking this idea of, like, the future of the 1960s. Violet's the leader of an all-female team, and Dash has an all-male team. And Helen and Bob are, like, uh, UN Emirates as in Frozone. They, like, 
are like representatives of two world leaders of like superheroes. And there's like maybe like not a Justice League, but like a Council of Good and Bob and Helen lead that. Um, and Jack Jack is like 14 years old and is a moody teenager going through puberty when he also has all of these powers. And I was like, how funny would that be for Helen and Bob that they're like diplomats, but then they have this like teenager at home who could get angry and turn into a demon at any point or like <laughs> like disappear through the floor. I thought those would be some fun things. I didn't get to a villain or anything. Um but then I also said that like bring honey into it. Let's have honey have powers. Um I would love like again I said honeybee. Like it would be really cute if she had like some sort of bee powers with wings. I thought that'd be really cute. Um or if she had fire power, I thought fire would be really cool and fire and ice and for her in Frozone. Um and uh and like give her a really cool 1970s kind of name. I thought those aspects would have been really interesting. Um because like what happens if now that heroes are back their society progresses beyond the future of the 1960s. What if they're, when we get the next film, what if they're the future of the 1980s? So that weird future, that techno future that we got in the 80s in films, what if that's what their world becomes and like Bob and Helen feel outdated and the kids make them feel old? Um, and we have a techno villain, like a t another techno villain would be really cool. Or it's like a computer virus based villain. So you don't know who it is. And it ends up being a syndicate of heroes that worked with Bob and Helen, but have turned their back on them. Um, I also thought like a league of like a league of villains, like a league of evil would have been cool. Like you get this almost Justice League team, like Dash and Violet leave their teams and they each bring one, their significant others, and you get Jack-Jack and Frozone and Honey and Bob and Helen, and it's like this Avengers kind of moment <laughs> against this, like, I, and I was like, bring back the Underminer, or bring, you know, just give us some really fun villains, which they did in the second one, but we got all those heroes, and so that would be my my pitch of give us like a 1980s action film um, that still feels like in this kind of thing. Uh, and I thought that would work actually really well. Oh, for sure. For sure. You already saw me on that pitch already. I kind of want to see this movie that you just came up with. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Listen, Disney Pixar, I, I, I'll be working for you at this point. So like, just call me. I'll come up to the offices. We'll chat. Let's make a movie, guys. Let's let's hey, make a movie. Hey, me too, man. I want to make movies too. So talk, come talk to me. Let's do it. Let's we'll bring it. Well, you know what? We'll just bring everybody at a certain point of view along. Because we got we go. Ash. She's a director over at Let's Rewatch. Pat's a writer. Um, Brett makes some amazing music. Sam's an actress. Matt and Matt and uh, Rachel are quirky and wonderful. We'll bring them. We'll bring everybody. We'll just we'll bring everybody. Everybody can, can come. There we um, go. Nice. But yeah, I think I think I think there would be a really cool way to do Incredibles three, and I don't think it would feel. I don't think people will have the response like they did for Toy Story four. Now, while Toy Story four ended up being absolutely breathtaking and a wonderful film. A lot of people felt a certain way about it because we'd gotten a really nice ending with Toy Story 3, where with Incredibles 2, we got a nice ending where we don't necessarily need another one. But this is another one. I want to live in this world a little more. I want these characters. I want to I want to be around these characters. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it'd be really fun and I would love that more. Yes, for sure. For sure. And like, um, yeah, we'll love to see a time jump like you mentioned. Also, like for the villains. How so? How someone be a super? Pretty much, we we always have the whole like human versus superhero dynamic thing. But what about yeah. super versus superhero? Like the whole like yeah. kind of, kind of like maybe like Mister Incredible versus like another strong guy, and they're mm -hmm. having this whole like Superman versus Zod destroy, destroying Metropolis scene. 
mm-hmm. and kind of, that kind of like you know from that destruction and kind of like brings up the question like do we still need superheroes because they're, they're always mm-hmm. destroying stuff that well, kind of and it could, sorry go ahead oh so that kind of brings back the whole like you know like the question from earlier like hmm do we actually need them if they're like causing out these taxpayer dollars and all that stuff yeah yeah well and so my thought with that could be is what if like bob and helen are the old generation and you've got Dash and Violet who have learned from their parents, but you've got a whole new generation of kids whose parents are not supers, but they are. And so what if it's like, so I'm thinking of like the submariner from, um, uh, 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 from, oh, the boys, like this idea of the, that, like, he's kind of an asshole, but he's more powerful than Bob. Like, and so he takes over as like, Mr. Incredible's out, this guy's in, and they end up being the like conflict between the two, because the new guy is more about the fame and the money and like the aspects of being this superhero that like you could put corporations on and things. And like, Bob's like, no, we're here to protect and serve. And he's like, no, let me, let me be famous. Let me enjoy this. And it could be a really cool clash between the two. Um, where, you know, it's, which could then, it could even open us up to a a fourth movie. Maybe we don't need that, but (laughs) (laughs) let's join a favorite six one, a whole uh, incredible saga. (laughs) This is not pirates. We also (laughs) didn't need that from pirates either. Um, but you know, I think it could be really cool. And this is another one where I would like to live in this universe more. I would love some more incredible things at Disney parks. I think that would be really fun instead of just overlays. Um, you know, I think this is a universe they've created that I desperately want to live in and I desperately want to see more of. Um, or maybe even they acknowledge that like Wally is the future of the Incredibles. Like that is the far future of the Incredibles. Like what, what does that mean? Like, you know, there's that conspiracy theory that all Pixar movies are connected and take place in the same universe. But like what happens if we are getting a future where like technology is boomed so much that we're destroying the planet. Like those things that I think there's lots that we could do that would make this still feel fresh and vibrant and not contrived at all. Um, also, I would just love to see more from Brad Bird uh, as an animator. He gets it as a storyteller. He gets it. I just adore him. He's lovely. Uh, I would love to see him. I would love to see him tackle a, a like genre movie for Disney, like, um, a Moana or something or, or, you know, something in the Zootopia universe, something would be, I would love to see him tackle more things for Disney and have them continue to use him. Even though Tomorrowland was a bust. Yes, for sure. For sure. I mean, I don't know. I feel like Brad Bird, his talents can be, can expand so much. I mean, he made the fourth mission impossible movie, which was really good. Yeah, that's for sure. So I, yeah, I feel like he could like do whatever when it comes to Disney or like any other mm-hmm. studio. He's he's what I consider a true renaissance man of film and television, um, which I would be excited to see what a musical from him would look like. And who's saying that Disney isn't producing that musical with him with because uh, like if you're thinking about like. You've got Michael, you've got Lin-Manuel Miranda, you've got Bobby and Crystal Lopez, and you still have, like, Randy Newman. Disney has all of these musical geniuses right now. Um, With someone like Brad Bird, I think they could do a really cool picture. So, I don't know. But I think, I I just, I love this movie. I love everything about it. (laughs) I I just, so, I was so happy that you wanted to do this. uh, Yes. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It was an honor. Of course. Any thoughts uh, before we wrap up? Uh, Well, one thing for sure. If you, seen, if you haven't seen The Incredibles yet, what are you waiting for? Like, where have you been? You gotta watch this movie it's, immediately. 
Also, it's on Disney Plus, and Incredibles 2 is on Netflix, and I believe by the point this comes out, it, Incredibles 2 will be on Disney Plus, I think. So, if nothing else, go watch Incredibles, go over to Netflix, watch Incredibles 2, love yourself. I think this is better than any, almost any Marvel movie that's come out, so like, love it, live it, do it up. Yes, for sure, for sure. Uh-oh, I hope you didn't piss off any uh, MCU fanboys after saying that. Listen, I, I like to think that um, we have very respectful fans on here, and anybody that's just an MCU fanboy um, has read a fucking comic book. So, like, hopefully, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, like, if they don't like it, I, I've assumed they've left before when I talk about gay things and women's rights if, if the fanboys of the MCU haven't left yet. So, oh, get out. <laughs> uh, well, great. Okay, so, Stephen, where can people find you online? Alright, so like we mentioned, um, you can check out my, the our podcast at certainpov.com. We're also on Spotify and iTunes. And do be sure to check me out on YouTube. I host my weekly Cineguy film reviews on YouTube. It's, the channel is called Director Man Prod. I'm also on Instagram at Steven, where I post more fun reviews. Great. And uh, your show has a new Instagram, right? I guess it won't be new when it comes out, but you all are on Instagram as well, correct? Uh, the podcast? Yes. Yes. Or maybe it's just yeah. Great. And where where can what is what is that Instagram handle? So that is um, taken care of by uh, our good buddy Hans Martin Jr., the real movie critic. Great. And the channel is called. Let me uh, follow him at Real Critic Thirty Four, where he he posts like all the advertising for our show. Great. Well, thanks so much for being on the show today. I appreciate it. This has been a super time. Can you believe we've been friends for seven years? And it all started because I compared you to Alana the Lioness. Tamara Pierce really set the tone of our friendship. A love of magic. Briar Moss. Fantasy. Briar Moss. Powerful women. And of course, Briar Moss. I'm Anna. And I'm MJ. And we invite you to join our circle of friendship. Where we do a chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the Circle of Magic series by Tamara Pierce. We answer important questions like, how does Moonstream let certain dedicates take care of children? Can you imagine anyone else but Mandy Patinkin playing Nico? Knives, Briar. And Knives? Join us every other Monday at cofpodcast.libsyn.com or wherever you download podcasts. But seriously, Knives... Thank you again for listening to the Dole Up and Dreams podcast. There's only one more regular episode of the Dole Up and Dreams podcast left, and I cannot wait for you to hear it. Uh, at the end of December, the Dole Up and Dreams Teespring will shut for good, so make sure you get those orders in now. Make sure you're following us on all social media. That way, when we switch the show over to Saturday Morning Confidential, you don't have to do a thing. There is a link tree on our Facebook and our Instagram. Thank you again to David White for audio editing and Brett Eagleston for the use of the music at the end of this episode. Now may your days be filled with Dole Whip and dreams. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.